all war is at its most deep and difficult place is similar. So I'm maybe six, seven, eight years old. I'm hanging out at my grandparents' house, my grandfather, who fought uh, in World War II. And uh, he comes in wearing the sleeveless undershirt, and he points to his bullet wound in his shoulder, and he points to the shrapnel wound in his neck, and he says words to the effect of, all war is uh, darkness. Initially, I just thought that the, the definition of patriotism is to just to stay with the herd and do whatever your country's leaders ask you to do, and you don't ask questions, you don't worry about like the why behind it, you just salute smartly and follow orders because you assume that your leaders have the best interests of your country in mind. I realized that patriotism, in a way, had been had been hijacked, as in the the powers that be, if you want to call it, I guess the the military, industrial, congressional, media complex. They were responsible for creating the illusion that patriotism only means, you know, support for the troops in a time of war, no questions asked. We have spent more than $7 trillion in fighting wars in the Middle East. Unless we discipline our thinking, our definitions, our actions, we may be drawn into more wars we don't need to fight. Our systematic effort to dismantle terrorist organizations must continue. But this war, like all wars, must end. We cannot ask our military to keep solving problems that cannot be solved militarily. We're not going to bomb our way to a solution in Afghanistan. By removing Soleimani, we have sent a powerful message to terrorists. If you value your own life, you will not threaten the lives of our people. This is The Pursuit. I'm Natalie Dowzicki. The United States maintains an all-volunteer military force of 1.3 million active duty personnel and 800,000 in the reserves. Our country thrives due to the extraordinary people who are willing to put their lives on the line to ensure the safety and security of everyone here at home. We have interviewed six individuals who are all connected in one way. They have left their families for years at a time to protect us. Some have even served multiple tours of duty in the last few years. I am Major Becky Heisey. I am a public affairs officer in the U.S. Air Force, and I have been in the Air Force for a little over 12 years now. So I am a classic example of the growing um, trend that you see of kind of keeping it in the family when it comes to military service. So I joined the military simply because uh, my dad was in the military. So it's really all I've ever known. Next, we have Eric Gopner, a retired Air Force colonel. So uh, as a young guy, I was a little bit of a rabble rouser, but despite being a rabble rouser, uh, I always had an interest or a desire to be a part of something bigger than myself, to serve something beyond my self-interest. So that's half the story. The other half of the story is my father is an immigrant. Um, at the age of three, my grandparents took him and they escaped from East Germany. And then about six years later, uh, he was able to come to the United States. By the time he was 18, he was at MIT, and then he went on to have a great uh, 35-year career as an aeronautical engineer. And I don't know of any other country that uh, provides second chances like that. So being in the world's greatest Air Force was a small way to say thank you. And this is Max Pappas. My name's uh, Maxwell Pappas. I'm a uh, current active duty major in the U.S. Army. I'm an infantry officer, um, and I've been serving for 13 years. 
Becky and Max both deployed to Afghanistan alongside Eric. These individuals were more than willing to talk about their experience on the ground. So there's a small village. Um, a buddy of mine is doing operations with the Afghan National Army. I do operations with the Afghan government, so my duties were different than his. And at night, they send up illumination rounds, and they send them up in a canister that's roughly like a mortar canister. It gets shot up, and they do these little plots to make sure they know where that metal canister is going to drop, because even a metal canister with nothing in it can be lethal. The U.S. military is in Afghanistan to train the Afghan National Army, who is actively fighting the rebels. The U.S. military runs hundreds of drills and tests each day. During a routine nighttime drill, soldiers ignited an empty metal canister device to verify where it would land, but something went horribly wrong. So they had made a calculation error, and there were two little kids sleeping on the top of their house because in Afghanistan, nobody has electricity, nobody has uh, air conditioning. So the kids are on top of the roof to escape the summer heat. Unbeknownst to them as they sleep, the metal canister comes down and slices through uh, two of the three. There were three kids up there and two died. So we go out, um, my friend goes out to do kind of a culturally appropriate interaction with the village elders, and I go out there alongside the Afghan government officials. And I also bring one of my um, teammates, young lady, because only ladies can go visit with the ladies, and so her job that day is going to go and try and console and express in a culturally appropriate way our deep sadness at what has happened. The female teammate that Eric referenced was Becky. So we ended up spending a couple hours um, with this woman and what remained of her family and some of the extended family was there. We were able to render um, some you know, basic medical support. I think um, one of the kid's foot was badly injured, like just a bad wound on it. So we were able to clean it all up, kind of get it bandaged all up, leave some you know, medical supplies behind, just spend some time with this woman and really, you know, express our condolences um, and just spend a lot of time and learned a little bit more about her, a little bit more about her family. Um, And it was just, yeah, I mean, it was something that was unfortunately, you know, very tragic for her, but it was something that we tried to do every, every time that I went into a village. My role was to try and, and, and humanize us a little bit as the U.S. military. And when we would be conducting these operations, you know, I made the intention of sometimes I had a translator with me, sometimes I didn't, but I would go into these homes as other operations were being conducted and, and you know, using my basic Pashto, Salam Alaikum, and saying my name is when my Pashto name that I would give and just a smile and, and trying to show them, hey, there's a female here too, and we're not putting a little bit more of a human face. And so it was it was something that I did a lot over that year, but that um, experience was one where we were able to spend a couple hours with her. Obviously, we couldn't, you know, change what had happened and we couldn't do anything, but it was it was a, something that we could do and really try to, you know, express our condolences. Sometimes Americans forget that when we apply force in war-torn countries, we are not the only ones suffering losses. According to the Washington Post's startling Afghanistan papers, 157,000 people have been killed in Afghanistan since 2001. Over 43,000 of those deaths were Afghan civilians. There is no way to comprehend what the Afghan people have been through as this war has played out in their towns, marketplaces, and backyards. And so no matter which slice you want to take of that story, everybody suffered moral injury. That woman, her life has been grievously changed forever. 
If you think about the poor young kid who made the plotting error with that canister, that person's life has been changed to forever. And it's it's a small, when I say small mistake, it wasn't done on purpose. And it was in the, the big scheme, the, the mistake itself was insignificant, but the consequences were catastrophic. And that poor young person is going to have to live with that for the rest of their life. To this day, they are still wrestling with the ethical questions surrounding their conduct. At the same time, they wonder what real impact they had, if any. I honestly don't know if it made a strategic impact at all. But at the very tactical level, back to the very human to human level, I have to believe that it did. I spent a year of my life there, spent a year of my life spending time with the Afghans, spending time with the Afghan government officials even, um, and I know how much effort and blood, sweat and tears that I put into those to really try and bring bring the humanness of what we were, we were there being more than just, you know, a, mili- a U.S. military there to get the bad guys, really trying to to bring more of some of the that, that um, American culture. I tried to bring that to every interaction I have, and I have to believe that, that it did make a difference, that those did make a difference. I don't know if it made a strategic difference, but I have to believe that for those one-on-one interactions that it made a difference. I think that's my biggest reflection when I look back. I don't know if I made any big, big differences. I don't know if Zabul is any better as a result of the much, much hard work and money and effort that went into it. But I know that there are many Afghans that, you know, they did get the best of what the American military had to do in in our one-on-one interactions. And, And that was what I could guarantee. Countries like Afghanistan and a few others that are hotspots right now, if it goes on too long, Afghanistan clearly has, then you should expect that it's going to continue a lot longer, that it's a horrible, vicious um, cycle where it reinforces itself in a negative way. Afghans and Iraqis need a period of peace where they can just reconstitute themselves, let a generation grow up that knows something other than constant war. Um, And so I just want to make sure that it's understood that that's the derivative point. The main point is take care of U.S. objectives, but there's no good argument for how we're taking care of U.S. objectives now. All of our service members have a wealth of practical knowledge, but in many instances, their pleas fall on the deaf ears of Congress. In fact, at the time of the Vietnam War, three quarters of the members in Congress were former service members. That ratio has quickly dwindled to 18 percent for the current Congress. Dan Grazier was deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. He now serves as the Jack Shanahan Military Fellow at the Project on Government Oversight, also known as POGO. Like many veterans, Grazier believed what he did in Iraq was right in making an actual difference. However, six years later, when he landed in Afghanistan, his outlook drastically changed. We were just swatting flies like where we could, and we weren't really doing much. And at that point, I, I, I really believed that any good that we had accomplished in Afghanistan happened 12 years earlier in 2001. Like the war in Afghanistan should have been over in December of 2001, basically. And so why we were still there was, was a, was a big mystery. And it was, it was a conundrum. I'll, I'll say it that way. I knew why we were there. We were there because we were told to be there mostly because no one had the guts to say, look, we can't accomplish anything else. There's nobody here in Washington wanted to be responsible for pulling us out. The military, it should be prepared to fight the kind of wars that we, to face the kind of threats that we actually face. 
but that's that's it it should it should be a you know break glass in in time of war tool uh it should mostly reside here in the united states and prepare to fight the the threats that we actually face uh we shouldn't be scattered all over the 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 military shouldn't be scattered all over the world uh the way it is uh you know it should be a, a a force in being you know should the should the need arise no president wants to be labeled as the one that lost a war but at the same time why would a president want to be labeled as continuing an endless one This is Dan Caldwell, a senior advisor to Concerned Veterans of America. It actually dishonors veterans when we pursue a bad foreign policy. And it was really responding to folks who are saying that we need to stay in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria forever to honor the sacrifice of those that gave their lives in those in those countries for the United States. And we just wanted we just wanted to rebut that and turn that whole idea on its head. Because it, candidly, it's absurd. It's insulting to those that, 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 that gave their lives. Whether you agree with the war or not, they were there in service of the country. They, they were given their lives in many cases for the men and women on the right and left. And to use them as an excuse to pursue a bad foreign policy to us was just it was insulting. And you enlist in the military um, for many reasons, but the military ultimately exists to provide safety and security for the United States so we can have liberty here at home. And that that is why we need people to enlist in the military. And if we're going to pursue something that isn't making us safer, that isn't preserving our prosperity, then we're, we're dishonoring the sacrifice. We're dishonoring the, the fact that we've had people step up and volunteer to serve in these, in these wars. And we just think it's ridiculous that this argument keeps getting made that, oh, we need to stay there forever and we pull out, you know, all these folks died for nothing. And it's, it's just absurd. After nearly two decades of fighting in Afghanistan, we should all be asking ourselves, is this really the best we can do to bring our service members home? Quite a few of our interviewees expressed concern that the general public has no clue what the military does. This is Jeff Groom, a former officer in the Marine Corps and a former naval pilot. So the thing that I, I didn't really expect to see was just how dysfunctional the military actually was and is at just doing the basic things right, like not even in, in wartime, but just in peacetime, just putting our time and energy where it needs to be in order to maintain readiness, um, to fix our airplanes, uh, to do all those things that the military is expected to do from the Congress and the American people. That's That was my biggest uh, disappointment or the way it changed from reality, where my expectation was, was that the military is definitely not a well-oiled machine um, that is just continuously, you know, on top of its game, and nothing could be further from the truth. According to the Afghanistan papers, the government not only deliberately tried to hide the facts about the war from the American public, but they also knowingly made false public statements to gain continued support for the war. Sadly, this is not the first time nor will it be the last that the government omits the truth about what our military does. You can't run a successful organization without holding people accountable for their actions. Yet, in the last two decades, our leaders have strategically manipulated public opinion to make their decisions appear favorable. And honestly, as a fellow patriot, I'm concerned that not enough people care that we have been led astray. The American people should have a very good understanding because any person that, you know, soldiers have commanded to have hurt or killed, 
it's in the name of the American people. And so, you know, right or wrong, if, if I'm right or wrong, when we do that stuff, when we, you know, use violence, it's in the name of the American people. They should have a pretty good vote. And um, I, I don't, I don't necessarily know that. I think a lot of it's isolated. And I think, you know, the use of a small, like very professionalized active duty force in order to do that means that they, the American people don't end up with a vote and they don't really understand, get a good understanding. The average civilian thinks that this, their, their military only wants to be comfortable like they are or some of them want to be. But really what you join the military for is not to be completely comfortable. It's to be broken off. It's to sacrifice. It's actually to put something, you know, on the altar of sacrifice, so to speak. Even like people that say, you know, thank you for your service, you know, I kind of, I don't, I don't, I've never gotten into it with any of them, but I try to like challenge them to think a little harder or dig and see. And I'd say probably like half the time if I start digging and say, well, you know, thanks for the support. I appreciate it. But I mean, tell me honestly, like, what do you really think about, you know, the war on terrorism? Do you understand it? What are we doing? What's the strategic goal? Do you understand and why? And we also are experiencing unprecedented support for being in the military. We are so lucky that the U.S. population so greatly supports the U.S. military. But it also um, seems from my perspective that we're put on a little bit of a pedestal. And so what does that tell us? What do we need to just continue to understand about that relationship when the percentage of people that are that are serving us continuing to get stronger but the support um, is it appropriate what we're receiving kind of you know a cop-out for not having to serve themselves and I, I don't know but it's something that I'm kind of wrestling with just as I'm serving I think you know I look I'm happy to serve I'm proud to serve but at the same time as we're getting you know this oh, this thank you and this, oh, you know, military discounts and military recognition. I'm like, I don't know if that's appropriate. From my personal perspective, I think that there should be a lot more questioning of what the military is doing and why, just because that's, that's what keeps everybody honest. The American people, it's like, you're not a patriot if you don't support the troops. I think you're a patriot if you support the ideals of the country. Um, and that's really how that should work. If the, you know, if military campaigns or like decisions that are being made don't support the ideals or the values of the country, you're you're not a patriot if you don't stand up against that. I think that's a bigger that's that's the thing. There, there's a little bit of idolatry that goes around um, along with, you know, the military worship worship in the United States. I, I think that in itself is pervasive. Well, it's corrosive in the long term, uh, just because it's. It doesn't help make sure that it doesn't hold anybody accountable for making sure that what we do is in line with the values that we say that we support. I mean, no, nothing's perfect. No system's perfect if there's no checkups on it. Thanks for listening to The Pursuit. If you like The Pursuit, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Pursuit is a project of libertarianism.org and the Cato Institute. Music by Cellophane Sam. If you'd like to learn about libertarianism, visit us at libertarianism.org.